Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello, hello. Welcome in to Downtown, the podcast. Indeed, it is episode number 280. And we're brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of fine conversations on the show this week, a little bit later on. Best-selling author Richard Chismar talks with us about his new book, Becoming the Boogeyman. Up first, though, a talented actress and Emmy Award nominee. You know her from uh, television shows like Goliath and Six Feet Under, films like Cape Fear, Goodfellas, her wonderful role in Grace of My Heart. She's also a talented author as well, having written the book I Blame Dennis Hopper and her new one, called Connecticut in the Movies, our conversation with Ileana Douglas here on Downtown. Let's start with this. Welcome back to New England. How is the house coming, Ms. Blandings? <laughs> uh, it's about, I, I feel like I've said this for a very long time, but it's about, seven. we're 75% uh, done. And uh, I work around the schedule of my dear uh, carpenter, Jack of all trades. His name is actually Jack. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I work around him and he's very he's very popular in these parts. So we're we have one section left, which is my upstairs bedroom and my bathroom. So that's the light. And then outside we have a whole kind of area but it's a big farm there's a barn and there's a lot of acreage so i most of the house is done and most of the worst part of the house is done but then i'm also working on the outside in the barn but all the horror stuff is pretty much behind me i think i hope how's your dog do when there's work and construction going on well he's you know it's funny he He's very selective on who he likes and who he doesn't like. If the person's there for a long time, he's very used to them. So, uh, so, yeah, he likes the electrician, and he likes uh, Jack, my carpenter. But um, people who come in and out, he's not as friendly to them. He li- oh, he likes the plumber. He likes one of the plumbers, but he's pretty. He's selective. He's actually he's asleep right over there. Oh, so. good. That's, like most of my listeners, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did the how did the idea for this wonderful book about Connecticut in the movies first come to you? Well, it always you know it's funny. It's one of those things that it per, it always percolated in my brain, being from Connecticut, that I this you know stereotype of when you would say oh where are you from i'm from connecticut oh connecticut and i you know no one says oh ohio or oh pennsylvania you know there's just in a certain assumptions about connecticut so that always percolated in my head then cut to me meeting frank perry when i worked for peggy siegel and we shared offices with him and that's, I got my start in the movies, you know, doing a little bit part in a film. And he gave me a copy of his movie, The Swimmer. And the whole thing was set in Connecticut. And it's so strange and weird. And that set me on, you know, writing, uh, reading John Cheever and, and 
again, percolating. Wow, that's interesting. Again, this other segment of Connecticut. And then cut to many years later when I'm working on Trailers from Hell, and I did an essay on The Swimmer, and it was very well received and um, picked up by a lot of you know, different sites and everything. And that's when I began to think, well, maybe there's a movie in, uh, in uh, sorry, maybe there's a book in here. And the way I approach any book is similar to the way I would act in a movie. I don't want to just do an IMDb list of like <laughs> movies in Connecticut. I wanted there to be a through line of why I was writing the book. And then that's when I came up with the idea of, well, how do we get, since I wrote The Swimmer first as an experiment, I thought, how do we get to The Swimmer? And then that's when I went, I decided to go back in time. What surprised me was I didn't know that silent films were made here. So that was a big surprise. But I wanted to tell the story of the changing perception of Connecticut mainly created by Hollywood that started in the 1930s with these romantic comedies like Bringing Up Baby and Theodora Goes Wild and how we went from idyllic Christmas in Connecticut to dark suburbia, suburban angst, The Ice Storm is a contemporary film. And now when a film is set in Connecticut, it usually signals to the audience something terrible is going to happen. <laughs> and I, I wanted to tell that story. So that was my premise. And as I got into that, that the book broadened into really a, a road trip movie book, coffee table book, because I was learning about history and true crime and horror films and and it became really really fun for me to try to include all of these movies to show a broad depiction of the state well i love some of the early history and things i was not aware of like the story of of william gillette the original sherlock holmes yes i, I it's uh it's it's completely unknown history and i don't know if connecticut has low self-esteem that they don't, <laughs> they don't you know it's always, you know, Connecticut is like the, the state in between, uh, you know, uh, Massachusetts and New York. And so it's like between Boston and New York City. And yet some of the greatest writers have worked here. Um, you know, Scott Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby here and uh, uh, Noel Coward wrote plays here and traveled to Broadway. Lillian Hellman, Ilya Kazan, William Steyer and on and on Arthur Miller. And uh, yet that's never been gathered in one opus. And so the book is an attempt to create a brand for Connecticut, that this is this is who we are and this is who what we stand for. I like uh, the, the chapter on what you call the country living comedies. And you mentioned Theodora Goes Wild with uh, your grandfather, Melvin Douglas, who is so brilliant in it. And one of my favorite actors of all time, the wonderful Irene Dunn. I love that movie. Yes, yeah, so for Irene Dunn, this was really a risky thing for her mm. because she really didn't want to do a comedy. And she was so good in the film. And the director of it was Richard Boleslavsky. And there was an interesting tie-in with that to Connecticut, which, again, I was completely unaware of. Uh, he was an incredible director. He died very young, so not very many people know about him. But he came from the Stanislavs Theater, in um in Russia 
Stanislavski method was the, you know, the introduction, which what we now know is the actor studio uh, type of acting, a more uh, realistic approach to acting. And in the 1930s in Brookfield, Connecticut, he was part of the group theater along with Sanford Meisner and mm. Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and, um, you know, all these uh, Harold Clerman, many, many other people that were John Garfield uh, that were in Connecticut uh, experimenting on plays. And they they put on uh, they rehearsed Waiting for Lefty. So this was the start of the change in American uh, in American theater. It all began in Brookfield, Connecticut. And that director was a part of that. And he carried that realistic approach to acting into Theodora Goes Wild, which sets it apart from other screwball comedies. I think there's a great, there's a naturalism in the film that I really appreciate. Uh, I was surprised to learn that bringing up Baby did not especially impress the studio. They didn't like Katherine Hepburn's look. They weren't crazy about her performance. No, another, <laughs> and again, this is, that's an example of a movie. It's it, this is our, our brand is created in a sense right there. Catherine Hepburn bringing up baby. That is uh, a snapshot of what we think of when we think of Connecticut, a kooky heiress, wealthy, has a, you know, uh, that, that the tight jaw way of talking and wealthy kooky relatives. And she, that is who she was and that's who her family is. That's what they celebrate at the Kate Museum. And she really is an example of a mo modern actress, but she was a little bit ahead of her time in that film. And because the film didn't do well, she goes back to Broadway and her roots in Connecticut, does this play, Philadelphia Story, and comes back and is, you know, conquers Hollywood, becomes a big star. Uh, Christmas in Connecticut, uh, you write about that uh, it's in many ways the quintessential Connecticut and quintessential holiday movie. And yet there's also a story ahead of its time of a, of a, an independent working woman. And it's a fascinating uh, duality there. Plus, it includes one of my all time favorite character actors, uh, Cuddles Sackle. If he's in it, I'm in. <laughs> I, know, I know. I always there's so much food in the movie. They're always talking about food and yeah. making food. I thought it would be a great idea that you could you could make the movie, as I suggest in the book. You can make the movie and then have a menu right. around the movie and make everything that they make in the in the film. What's interesting about that film in the trajectory of uh, Connecticut films is that. The movie takes place in the 1940s. She is a career, cynical career gal who doesn't want to get married. She has a boyfriend who's kind of a, he's snooty. Uh, you know, uh, they, they don't meld at all. But interestingly, he is making prefab houses. Mm. So this is a po interesting post-war little note there. But she goes to his country house in Connecticut with this ruse. And then we have this transformation where she falls in love with, you know, country living and, you know, falls in love with this soldier. But the end of the movie is she gets to keep her, which is very unusual. She gets to keep her job at the magazine. She maintains a good relationship with her ex, with her boss, and she gets the guy. So what shifted after that 
from Mr. Blanding's on is that women are come to Connecticut, really their husbands take them out of the city and now they're trapped in suburbia. And then we get all these kind of dark films and then in the next group is the 60s sex comedies. But that's why Christmas in Connecticut is so ahead of his time. I don't think anybody realizes that at the end of the movie, she gets to keep her job and she gets the guy. We're talking with Ileana Douglas about her wonderful new book, Connecticut in the Movies. Uh, well, let's talk about Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House. I, I love the film. Your grandfather is great in it. There is some, well, there's some suspicion there on the part of Cary Grant. What has gone on with this dear friend uh, when he returns to the house? But it's the, the classic film about uh, the dream of suburbia, as you entitled the chapter, and then the reality of it. Yeah, this, this, Mr. Blanding's, in terms of my research of Connecticut, no other film created the image of perfect living in Connecticut, Sub, a superior way of living, you know, a way of life, a better class of people. And that's not necessarily right or wrong, but in the post-war, it was, you need, to, you have to get out of the city in order to live a better life for your your kids, you're going to have more room, you know, it won't be as cramped. But uh, to me, the whole movie is centered around in the beginning, and Cary Grant is an ad man, is he looks at a magazine, and there's a, you know, an advertisement for Connecticut, and it, and it says, you know, a better way to live. And that's, and I think it's so funny, because it's a movie. It's not real life. And yet the film sold this idea of superior living in Connecticut. And when the movie came out, you know, accompanied it with you could buy a kid house and you could live in the exact house right. that the Blandings <laughs> lived in. And it worked. And there's Blanding houses all over America. There's four in Connecticut. I took a photograph of two of them. But I think that in, in no other movie created that dream of suburbia. But once they got here, you know, it doesn't the the end of the movie is that they're all in they're all there and they're incredibly happy. But the next group of movies are Gentleman's Agreement, Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. Now that they're in suburbia and away from New York, this is where the cracks in the American family appear. And I found that to be an interesting uh, journey. Well, and those suburban sex comedies, I'm thinking especially of Wives and Lovers, they haven't aged very well. No, my God. They're, they're well... The first thing I noticed in them, because no one's ever studied sex comedies as a serious genre of film, but yet there's so many of them that I think they really do need to be studied because what are we saying about the culture and what was Hollywood saying about the culture and were these things really going on? I mean, in some instances, you have actors like Richard Widmark that really were living in right. Connecticut and then also appearing, you know, in these movies. So there's kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink about all uh, about all of these um, sex comedies. But the first thing I noticed was the children immediately disappear. <laughs> well, it was in this, 
in Mr. Blanding's, remember, the children are very much a part of the movie. Right. And their opinions matter and they're, you know, they're making fun of their their dad and they're, you know, that he's an ad, he's a shallow advertisement guy. By the time we get to, you know, movies like Wives and Lovers, the, the children are gone or they're told there's a very specific scene where where one of the kids is told not to bother her father because he's working hard and making them money. And, you know, they're they're It shows even though they're supposed to be funny. It shows the divide that the men were now commuting to New York, often having their own apartments, and the wives were left in Connecticut. And you know, in Wives and Lovers, there's a whole lecture that Shelley Winters gives Janet Lee about, well, you're going to have to learn how to decorate your house and give cocktail parties and make sure that you know that everybody drinks vodka. There, I've never seen more drinking in a movie. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about a film that I have not seen, and uh, I feel pretty good. I've I've seen most of the films in the book. How did I miss Boomerang? And I need to rectify that immediately. Yeah, that's Boomerang is uh, one one of my favorite films that I wrote about. And again, based on a true story that Mm -hmm. happened in uh, Connecticut, a murder in 1924, unsolved to this day. Uh, you know, again, part of the reason of doing the book is, you know, you never know. Maybe maybe they can solve the murder because I'm sort of fascinated. Right. Was it in Bridgeport? It was in Bridgeport. Someone came up behind. There was a very beloved priest. A man came up behind him, shot him in the head. Uh, they never found the culprit. But the pressure to solve the crime of this beloved priest meant that they pinned it on a soldier who was who they'd found he was kind of drunk and disorderly and the police just decided to pin this crime on him and um the uh and homer cumming who was the uh uh he was the the prosecutor uh in fairfield county he came in and he went after speaking uh to the to the soldier whose name was harold israel came to the conclusion that it was a coerced confession but he didn't tell anybody he was very i mean this was a perry mason moment <laughs> he goes to court and uh he says it's just in, as important to defend the innocent as it is to convict the guilty and announces in a packed courtroom that he's switching sides and he's going to defend <laughs> i mean it was pretty i can't even imagine how dramatic uh this is and so Harold Israel gets off. There's a whole backstory, which I discovered, where they become friends. He he negotiates the rights for Harold Israel for them to make the movie. Uh, they stay in touch. It's a beautiful relationship. And Homer Cumming is then later tapped to be attorney general <laughs> under FDR. So it is a fantastic Connecticut story and one to really be proud of. I have to I have to see that soon. Uh, I, I love w- one of the sidebar stories about the film that happened in Jane, uh, happened to, uh, to Jane, which is set here in Maine, Cape Ann, Maine. But the story yeah. of Max Showalter, who ended up moving to Chester, Connecticut. Yes. And he he appears in two Connecticut films. It happened to Jane and then My Six Loves, which is another one of the oh. 60s. Sex oh, with, with friend of our show, Barry Livingston, as a young actor. 
Yes, that that's a really kooky movie. It's got a lot of good people in it. Cliff Robertson is in it, and uh, um, but Max Showalter in that plays a derelict uncle of six kids who he leaves at someone. It, it's completely crazy the plot, but anyway, he shows up in My Six Loves. But in uh, it happened to Jane. He went and he shot the film in Chester along with uh, Jack Lemon, Ernie Kovacs, Doris Day. They were all living in Chester and Doris Day was living in Deep River, which was nearby. And he fell in love with Chester and lived there and people people knew him. He left a lot of his artifacts at the Goodspeed Opera House uh, so in, in East Haddam. So he was a major. I mean, I'm so sorry. I wish I would Kind of by the time I wrote the book, he he had died, and I think also his partner had died. But uh, a great Connecticut story. Uh, when you talk about Connecticut cameos, of wonderful films like Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, It's a Wonderful Life, and, and I was so happy to see you write about what I think is an, an unjustly overlooked film, Away We Go, with Maya Rudolph and, and John Krasinski. Yes, it was. You know, when you're writing a book like this, and you have I mean, all in all, okay, there's, you know, close to 300 films were made in Connecticut or about Connecticut. So how do you go about picking the films? And as I said, it's not an IMDb list, yet you want to, I wanted to find a clever way to include certain films that where I thought there was a funny twist and away we go, which is a really, you know, interesting, wonderful film is shot entirely in Connecticut, but never identified as Connecticut. So I had to pick out a photograph of, okay, I know that's New Haven. So, you know, let me take, uh, let me use this still of, of New Haven, but, or All About Eve, which also figures in New Haven, but you never, you know, there, it takes place at the Taft Hotel and they use rear screen projection <laughs> of the Schubert, but they were never, uh, they have physical, they have, they have footage of the theater and then it cuts, which is so strange. I don't know why they did that. It cuts to a rear projection shot. Maybe it was a reshoot of Ann Baxter mm. and George Sanders with, and you can see them walking and the Schubert is behind them. So it was a clever way to include Connecticut. Uh, I, I think maybe my favorite part of the book was in the chapter on creepy Connecticut. I love the story of filmmaker Del Tenney. Completely unknown to me before I started in the book, I was so, I mean, one of my favorite things, again, is just to shine a light on any filmmaker who is there slogging away Nobody really knows about him, maybe as a small cult following. And to really highlight that uh, Del Tenney was former actor. He was in uh, Stalag 17 on Broadway and uh, started, you know, writing and directing horror films with his wife and in Stamford, Connecticut. And they made these low budget horror movies for um, for the drive-ins. And they were incredibly successful and one of them of course which later got picked up i i, I think by shout uh you know the horror the horror <laughs> can't even say it with a straight face the the horror of party beach <laughs> i think it's called and but what i found incredibly fascinating was 
it's so hard. You know, you go down a rabbit hole with these things is that Tenny's wife, what, they were living in the same studio where the sculptor who had sculpted Mount Rushmore. Right. And, and that in the same studio where he's carved and carved <laughs> Mount Rushmore, they're making, you know, rubber suits for <laughs> zombies that I think, what's the story? They get polluted. It's it, right. It's yeah. The, the, I, some sort of industrial contamination that leads to these mutations. Exactly. And I don't know, they're wearing these crazy rubber shoots, but, but it has, it's the kit. I call it the kitchen sink before it's got, it's like a biker movie. It's got some music in it. And some of the stories that he tells are really uh, fantastic, you know, fantastic. Now that would have been enough, but as I continued to read about Del Tenney and his wife, they took all of their money yeah. and they started the Hartman theater. Right. You know, again, unfortunately, is is now no longer in existence. But that, to me, is again why I wrote the book: is that here is this here are these two residents and artists. She and she performed many. I have a photograph of her performing at the Hartman Theater. So these are really, you know, Connecticut natives that we should really be taking a little bit more notice of, of and embracing and saying, you know, this is part of our brand. You also write about a film you know very well, the first LGBTQ film in Connecticut, uh, the wonderful The Green. The Green, again, this was this was part of my research. I was talking to Paul uh, Marcuselli, who's the, the producer of the of the film, and we were doing I was doing my research and I said, Paul, I don't I think I can write truthfully that we are the very first, you know, gay film made in Connecticut. I, we, I couldn't find anything previous, you know, to that. So, um, so that's something I'm very proud of. We shot the whole film in Guilford, Guilford, Connecticut is it just an incredible community and they opened their arms uh, to us and making the film was really special. And my mom drove me to the set every day. So <laughs> you can't beat that. <laughs> So if you look at films, Ileana, like uh, The Ice Storm, Revolutionary Road, uh, and you, you talked about this earlier, um, setting a film these days in Connecticut is very different than uh, the days of, uh, oh, the idyllic country lifestyle. What does it say today when producers make that choice? Well, I, this is why I wanted to separate films from what I call dark suburbia, which begins in the 50s. It's like, okay we're not in Blanding's world anymore. This is dark suburbia. And then we get into this, the 70s, but then we get into a full you know, decade later where we're in the 90s and the 2000s. And we have a lot of these films, ice, it begins with Ice Storm, Revolutionary Road, um, Far From Heaven, Todd Haynes' film, where they are contemporary films about the past, mm. but there is, they give characters from the past a modern voice, so in which they are commenting on the past. So therefore, I had to differentiate it from dark suburbia to dark suburbia redux. But in all of these films, what I noticed was there is a somewhat artistic, uh, almost stately vibe 
you know, everyone wearing vintage clothing, clothing, but in total despair about about their life. And they're very they're interesting, but that they comment that it's complete despair now and darkness living in suburbia is prison. Well, it is a, an absolutely wonderful read. Uh, as someone born in Hartford, though, I only spent a few months there. Uh, it felt like going home in a strange way for me. And and for anybody who is a film fan, it's so great to read again about these movies and the stories behind them. Uh, as always, uh, as you did in, in your first book, I blame Peter Fonda. Your love of film, your knowledge of film comes through. And uh, it's, it's a, a great travelogue of these wonderful movies made in your state. You know, I have to say, I don't, it's, I blame, De- I blame Dennis Hopper. Oh, Dennis I Hopper. I said Peter Fonda, didn't I? They go hand in hand. Yes, they do. Yes. I want to mention too, before we let you go, that you're going to be uh, doing a live appearance at the Kate in Old Saybrook coming up on November 15th. Yes. I'm very excited. The Kate Theater, the Catholic, dedicated to, there's a Catherine Hepburn Museum there. Uh, Hepburn, of course, the ambassador of Connecticut figures highly in the film and uh, with the ticket price, it includes a free book. So, you know, and I'll be signing it. So you can't, you can't beat that. I'm going to be interviewed by Colin McEnroe and we're going to be doing some giveaways and it'll be a lot of fun. So November 15th, 7 PM, get your tickets now. Well, the book is great. It's going to be one of those books I I keep uh, right on the shelf so I can refer to it anytime a film comes on set in Connecticut, filmed in Connecticut. It's, it's a great resource and a, a wonderfully fun read. Always great to talk with you, Ileana. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rich. Thanks so much. Best of luck with the house, and I uh, hope the dog likes most of the visitors that come in to do work. He's still asleep, so <laughs> he's, he's not impressed at all. No. <laughs> He can take a number. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ileana. Okay, thank you. All right. Bye. That's Ileana Douglas talking about her new book, Connecticut in the Movies on Downtown. When we return, author Richard Chismar talks about his latest, the follow-up to the hugely successful Chasing the Boogeyman. That's right after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Richard Chismar, collaborator with Stephen King on the Gwendy Trilogy, had a big success on his own last time out with Chasing the Boogeyman. His new book is a follow-up to it, and boy, the sequel is great. It's called Becoming the Boogeyman. Our conversation with Richard Chismar here on Downtown. Rich, thanks for being with us again. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Well, uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't after what you've done to me, man. Oh, man, <laughs> you did it. You did it again. Uh, it's amazing. We were talking about it earlier on the show. 
I know this is a work of fiction, and yet the way it's constructed, about 20 pages in, I'm completely wrapped up in the story and worried about you and your family. Uh, I love hearing that. That's, uh, that's the equivalent of whenever I, uh, whenever I, uh, I email or text Stephen King and say, dude, I lost sleep last night, and I get back in a little laughing emoji. You know, he delights in that, and so do I now. <laughs> Well, the first book, or the last book, rather, was indeed, that part's not uh, fiction. It was a big success. What, what was it like? What was the aftermath of, of having a New York Times bestseller for you? Uh, you know what? It was honestly, and, and I think authors say this often, and I'm not sure they always mean it, but I, I promise you I do. It was a surprise. Um, right before Jason the Boogeyman came out, I, 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 I had... A little bit of trepidation, which usually does not occur with me. I'm, if once I'm I'm happy with the story, then I let it go and I'm fine. If, if it finds an audience, wonderful. And if it doesn't, that's okay too, as long as it pleased me. But with with Boogeyman, the first one, chasing the Boogeyman, I, right before publication, I, I started thinking this book has a lot of buzz, and it's really not a big story. It's just kind of an old-fashioned campfire story about the uh, you know every small town has that Boogeyman. Um, and uh, this, you know, Edgewood, where I grew up, just happens to have a real-life boogeyman who's doing bad things. And I, 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 I was a little worried, but what I discovered through reader feedback was that it's a universal story. Like I said, every small town has the haunted house. Every small town has the legend. And, and people responded to that. And, and it, it was a nice uh, surprise for me. And now, uh, one of the things that is fictionalized in becoming the boogeyman is that there's a film based on chasing the boogeyman and I'm, I'm telling you i hope there is there needs to be at some point it'd be great uh you know what i hope so too and, and things look good um before the strike we were you know kind of forging ahead with uh with a good director and a good writer so uh, i'm hoping that now that the strike's over that we pick up uh, some momentum again well, one of the things that's uh, very interesting in this book is it, it also, uh, along with telling the story of the Boogeyman and Edgewood, it also talks about our fascination as a culture with crime, with murderers, and especially with serial killers. In this case, you know, people people uh, buying free the Boogeyman shirts, uh, wearing burlap masks, just like Josh Gallagher, and that, that speaks to really what our country is like these days. It really does, and, and that's something I tried to explore in a, in a non-heavy-handed way in Becoming the Boogeyman, because it's, it's, there's a very fine line. You know, I, I don't have a shirt with uh, Michael Myers on it. I, you know, I just walked out of my house into my office, and Halloween was playing on the television. I love that movie. Um, I don't have that shirt, but I would wear a T-shirt with Michael Myers. But on the other side of that line, there are people who wear T-shirts that have Ted Bundy's face on it, that have Charlie Manson's face. And that's a whole different you know, creature there. Um, so I, I try to explore that in the book, how there's, you know, we have a fascination. I, you know, people ask me all the time why I think that is. I, you know, it, 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 these, these, these serial murderers are so different from most of us. It's almost like we're, we're fascinated by an alien, you know, from another planet. So I, I think there's a quest for understanding. Um, and I think it's also a case of, you know, human nature. You know, if, if we look at that darkness close enough, it's somebody else's darkness. It's, you know, we can put the book down, put our head on the pillow, and we know we're safe. So I think there's a, you know, a little bit of a ritual there is what Michael, another writer, Michael Carita, said. And I, and I really agree with that. 
We're talking with Richard Chismar about his new book, Becoming the Boogeyman. So as the book begins, uh, you're still basking in the afterglow of the success of Chasing the Boogeyman, Josh Gallagher, uh, Gallagher behind bars, and the slightly fictionalized Rich Chismar is the only guy that Gallagher will speak to. And then strange things start happening again in Edgewood. Yes. Yes, they do. I, uh, you know, I, I hope my goal with this is that, you know, if a reader picks it up, the first chapter is kind of long. So I don't think they can do it. Maybe they can. I was going to say, I, I guess they can kind of loiter around inside the bookstore and read the first chapter. But that's kind of my challenge for, for anyone who had read Chasing the Boogeyman. If you can read the first chapter of Coming the Boogeyman and not, you know, take it up to the counter and take it home, um, then uh, I haven't done my job. But, but it, this is one of those few cases where I feel like the first chapter nails it. Um, the first chapter came to me fully formed one day when I was mowing the lawn, and that's the only reason I decided to write a sequel is because uh, it just came to me. And I knew that the reveal at the end of the first chapter would be shocking, and it ties it back into the case of the Boogeyman. So that's my goal there. So uh, is there a challenge involved in uh, including yourself as a main character and, and including members of your family in the book? Um, you know, it, 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 it is an interesting challenge. I, it, it, in some ways, it made it easier for me because I wrote a, a lot about true life. You know, I wrote about the house I lived in. I didn't have to imagine it. Um, same thing with our property and the fence line where certain, you know, integral parts of the uh, book take place. Um, and the same thing with my friends and the cast of characters. You know, I really did write about my wife and my two sons. And everyone's delighted to be in the book except for my wife. She is the one who... <laughs> it, 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 uh, she is not happy. She's refusing to read Becoming the Boogeyman until it comes out in paperback. And her reasoning is this way she doesn't have to discuss it with anyone. She can say, I can't talk about it. Spoilers. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the main challenge is just trying to be as authentic as I can because I think the, the temptation is to, you know, make Rich Chismar a triathlete who has a granite <laughs> chin and, and, and no gray in his hair. But the whole reason I put myself in the, in the first book and continued into the second was because I really felt like that was the only way I could tell this story uh, as honestly as I wanted to. And, and it's very revealing, the, the, you know, the things that I, you know, put pen to paper on and, and kind of revealed some secrets about myself. So, uh, yeah, it, it, in that way, it is challenging, but it's a, a lot of fun, too. Hi, Rich. This is Bruce Pratt. I, I, I teach creative writing at Maine, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you as soon as I read Chasing the Boogeyman, are you getting a reaction from academics about how valuable this book could be as a teaching tool? Because everybody wants hybrid literature now. They want things to combine. They, they blur the lines between fiction and nonfiction. Because I would I would think it would be right up the average MFA uh, book list if I, if, if I was to compile one. Right. Well, I appreciate that. I, if you have a mailing list of all these people, I'm, I'm, I'll send them postcards. <laughs> uh, well, I just wondered if they'd reached out to you because I, 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 it would seem so logical to do that. I don't teach oh, at that only, level. I've only heard from – I've received a tremendous amount of, of, of online mail, you know, emails and, uh, and, and posts on message boards and that kind of thing and, and social media. Um, but I've only, I've only heard from a few um, academics who have said this is – you know, this would be a great tool to, uh, you know, to, to make available to my students, that kind of thing. Um, I have spoken at a few libraries and uh, in high schools, and, and I've definitely gotten that reaction to where, uh, you know, they were interested in, in, in teaching it, that kind of thing. 
Well, Rich Chismar is a great character, but also in so many ways, as it was in, in Chasing the Boogeyman, Edgewood becomes a character in the story as well. Yeah, Edgewood is, uh, Edgewood is my, you know, it, it's kind of my Gary slash Castle Rock. I, uh, you know, and I actually steal a little from Stephen there when I talk about Can a, can a, can a City Be Haunted, like he, like he wrote about in It. Um, because I was just, you know, I was kind of feeling it in that moment, and, and I and I had to make that connection. But uh, yeah, it, it, you know, the first book really is about the loss of innocence, not only for me as, as a young, you know, man on, on kind of perched there on the cusp of adulthood, but also for my small town because it, it, it was my Ray Brer, Ray Bradbury, you know, peaceful, safe place in the world, and uh, this this boogeyman invaded it, and. Uh, there was a great quote that I used in there that essentially says, you know, once your innocence is lost, it can never be regained. And uh, that, that theme runs through the whole connection between me and Edgewood. Well, yeah, we talked about this when, when Chasing the Boogeyman came out. The recollections of your youth that were, I, I assume, very much yours that were in that book were so beautiful. And now in the new book, you're working on a book called Edgewood Looking Back. And I, I would definitely buy and, and read that book it, because those memories uh, ring true with so many of us who grew up in small towns. Right. Thank you. I, no kidding. Within, I mean, within the last half an hour, I received a private message on Instagram from a very kind um you know, older woman, and that's what she said. She said, I sure hope you're working on Edgewood looking back. And my response was one day. Um, because that, that's not, that doesn't even feel like work. When I'm writing about that stuff, I'm just smiling ear to ear. And, uh, and the, the idea of sitting down one day and just, you know, putting together a collection of those uh, memories would be, like I said, it would be, if someone actually paid me to do it, it'd be like stealing. Well, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but I do want to mention a couple specifics from the book that, well, frankly, just scared the hell out of me. Uh, you introduce a new character, Henry Matheny. Jesus, that's all I'm going to say. Jesus, Rich. <laughs> yeah, I, I had fun with that. I, you know, I, I tried, you know, obviously I've done a lot of reading, you know, a lot of true crime and a lot of, you know, research just because, you know, human monsters are, are terrifying to me. I... You know, I, I can't write very convincingly when I write about vampires and, and that kind of thing. And, and I, I think that's one of my attractions to Steve's work and, and some of the other folks who work so well in the supernatural. It's just, wow, I read it. I'm entertained. I'm scared. I'm also envious. You know, I wish I could do that. Um, the human monsters are what I've always kind of focused on. And, and, and old Henry, um, you know, a, a little bit came out of research and a whole lot came out of just me thinking, what is the worst scenario I can think here that, that yeah. isn't cliched and, and you know, it, it, it's all about human masks. And Henry, you know, you, you get to see Henry's mask slip once in a while. And to me, there's nothing scarier than that. The first book of Stevens that I read was Salem's Lot and when I was in high school. And at that moment in the book when, uh, when Danny Glick, who is now a vampire, appears at the window, I think I let out a scream. It, it just completely scared me. And I did it again in Becoming the Boogeyman. And I, I don't want to give anything away, but you'll know it involves a mannequin in your yard. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been asked a lot, you know, what do you have against mannequins? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, with the first book, Chasing the Boogeyman, again, I I, I had several true stories from, from police officers and detectives that, you know, who I, who I know well, but none of them felt right. 
for that part of the book where, where he was telling me his, his creepiest moments. So that's where the mannequin came in because, again, I just, you know, I put myself in his shoes and I think, okay, there is so many possibilities of what's behind that door in the dark in that, in that home. But so I tried to think what would freak me out the most and just the idea of those mannequins, you know, posed and everywhere and candles and the whole thing and then what's in the basement. Mm. I was like, yeah, I, I think I'd be retiring from the force after that night. Well, and, and the, the conversations that uh, you have with Josh Gallagher are so fascinating. What, what kind of research did you do into, I, I assume, uh, profilers or others talking with serial killers because those conversations seem so real? You know, I, what's interesting is, is uh, you know, I've obviously read read quite a few, um, you know, true crime and, and, you know, encyclopedias of crime and those kind of things over the years. But when it came time to sit down for Becoming, I purposely stayed away from all of that um, because I, I, I was terrified that I would, you know, subconsciously, you know, pick up on things and, 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 and write something that wasn't, you know, wholly original or mine. So I, I really just tried to – I treated him – you know, I, I use that phrase human monster, and I kind of tried to focus on that first part of that, you know, the human and, and have a person-to-person discussion and what I would think it was like. But again, you're going to see when certain buttons are pushed, you're going to see the mask slip. And, you know, I did an interview recently where, where it was a podcast, and, and the host just said there was a moment in the dialogue between them where he says, you know, I could have taken you any day at any time and, and mm. then it just the, the hairs on his neck you know stood up and i said that's great because when i wrote that it's the same thing that to have this guy who essentially is telling you in one breath that that you know we have this amazing connection you know i love you buddy um you're the only person i trust and the only person i'm going to talk to you you're the one who my youth treated me like like a normal person yet he's capable of, of saying that and you know that he's being honest so you know he was watching you and you know at any point he could have taken you know your life or anything that was important to you away from you and that's the yeah when i wrote that i remember it, it i was sitting right here at the desk in my office and, and it was late at night and it bothered me very much <laughs> well solving the, this a recent string of killings in edgewood uh, it was great i didn't see it coming which is always the mark of a of a well-written piece and yet it made perfect sense when we got there and uh, again no spoiler but uh, suffice it to say there's there's plenty of room for this story to continue there really is and, and i again when i started this book i had no intention of that with with chasing i had no intention to the point where you know i, I said no when people asked me um with this one when i started i had no intention when i was halfway through i had no intention when i was Three quarters of the way through, I had no intention. And then somewhere in that last 25% of the book, everything was leading to that moment. And I, I didn't quite know how that moment was going to be put on the page. But when I got there, I, I realized it doesn't need to be much. It's just that last little section of the book just says everything that needs to be said. And, and hopefully will uh, your people will close the book and kind of shake their head and say, son of a gun. Um, and, and, you know, and try to put it in the memory bank that if there is a third boogeyman book, they, they line up to buy it, hopefully. Well, there's no question about that. And, and I will say, much, uh, much as with chasing, the pictures are the cherry on top of the delicious ice cream sundae of horror here because, I don't know, your, your friends and neighbors seem to be more than willing to uh, pose as uh, as victims and killers. Oh, everyone. Like I said, literally everyone except my wife. Um, <laughs> she, 
gave me a hard time all through becoming the movie man. You know, when, when we kind of started going back and forth about you know anything, you know, I, I didn't quite get out there quick enough to help her unload the groceries. I'm like, oh, I'll make it up to you. I'll write a love scene in the book, and I would get the stink eye. You know, like, oh, don't you even think about it. Um, so I had fun with it, but she did not. So, but everyone else, yes, my neighbors, uh, you know, they just they line up to volunteer their daughters to be victims and <laughs> the whole thing. And, and you know, I already had one of my buddies. His picture is too small, and you can't see his face clear enough. So I told him, you know, well, if I get a chance, you'll get a close up in the third book. <laughs> well, becoming the boogeyman, it, it is great. It is a more than worthy successor. I think it raises the stakes even more. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, you'll read through it click, quickly, but my recommendation, do not read it late at night. Man, did I have some messed up sleep as a result of that. But it, it's great, and we wish you uh, as much success, if not more, with this one, Rich. It's so great to talk with you again. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. I love talking to you guys, and uh, thanks for the kind words. We'll catch you when the new one comes out. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care, guys. That's Richard Chismar talking about his new book, Becoming the Boogeyman. Our thanks to Rich. Thanks to the wonderful Ileana Douglas and to you for joining us this week on Downtown. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Downtown, a production of Downtown Productions and produced by Carrie Haskell. This is Rich Kimball. We will see you next time right here on Downtown.